But what I found in in-house was that the type of lawyer I probably always wanted to be but didn't know I could be was available in that in-house environment where you didn't need to be the best black letter lawyer in the room. That never filled me with joy, that side of the law. What fills me with joy is working with the business and helping them to be better and actually seeing the results of your work. You see a risk mitigated because of something that you've done. Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Jody Palmer. Jody is the Vice President Legal and Compliance at Volvo Group Australia. Jody is an accomplished lawyer and leader who has made the transition from across industries at a senior level. Jody and I met through the Association of Corporate Counsel's mentoring program, so I've experienced firsthand just how insightful and thoughtful she is. In this episode, we discuss a lot and we go deep on a common concern shared by professional women of a certain age. The mother of all questions, how do you manage the juggle between fulfilling career ambitions and young family life? Jodie's honesty is refreshing and as usual, she gave me a lot to think about. Enjoy this episode with Jodie Palmer. All right, I have pressed record, so we are on. Jodie Palmer, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. We've been meaning to do this for a while. You've been on my list of wish list guests or dream guests because I know how much value you have to offer, particularly to, to early and mid-stage in-house lawyers. And I know that from personal experience because I've had the benefit of being a formal mentee of yours with the ACC Australia mentoring program that we did many moons ago when we were both in different spaces and places and, and you were in a different job and, you know, things have happened and I'd love to get to that with you. But thank you for being here. And I will start as I do just for fun. And I'll ask you that if you had a limitless credit card and you could spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? I'm going to be very lawyer here because every time I hear you ask this, I think limitless doesn't mean you don't have to pay it back though. It just means it's going to be a really big bill when it shows up. Oh my God, Jody, that is so true. You are such a lawyer right now. I know, but let's put that to one side. Do you know, I have everything that I need and the ability to look after my family in all of the ways that we need to. So for me, it would be somewhere like Costco where I could just open it up to a bunch of charities and ask them to come and get anything that they need for people who need it. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much for your answer and for also pointing out the legal issues with my question. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. I love that. And I think I will have to put in some T's and C's to my my, my <laughs> questions so that all the lawyers feel more comfortable in answering and to That's confirm right. you do not have to pay back this imaginary <laughs> fictional fantasy credit card. <laughs> all right. What I want to ask you is what was your first legal job 
And then how did you find your way to in-house practice? Gosh, so I did some work experience. My parents are still in Mackay. It feels weird to say that I'm from Mackay though because I only lived there for five years and I've now lived in Brisbane for over 20. So I went back in the university holidays and did a bit of work experience at a firm up there. So that was enlightening, seeing the Mackay Criminal Court and things like that. So I think any kind of experience you can get at any kind of law firm is really useful in those early days in helping put some reality to the subjects that you're studying at uni and what it would actually look like to practice in those. So a lot of that just told me that I didn't want to go back to Mackay and have my career there. I had my sights set on on bigger, more commercial work that I wanted to do. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did the criminal stuff pique your interest? Or, no, you know, no. Just, just solidified, perhaps not for you. <laughs> uh, look, I'm an empath and I think I had enough self-awareness of that that I knew that practising law or even working in a completely different area that involved people's lives would be really difficult for me to leave at work and go home. So family law, personal injury law, criminal law, I often say to junior lawyers in my very commercial field that I've ended up in, the worst mistake that we can ever make is only going to cost someone money. It's just money at the end of the day. Yeah. This doesn't need you to be awake in the middle of the night worrying about this mistake you made. It's just money. So that was my way to, I guess, (laughs) make sure that I could do my job and then leave it at work. Most of the time, you know, we all have big matters that stay on our mind, but I'm never worried that someone's not going to have access to their kids because I didn't file a document on time or their quality of life is going to be significantly less because I didn't win the Mm. case to the level that I wanted to to get them the payout that they deserved and those kind of things. And I have huge amounts of respect for the lawyers who practice in those fields because I just felt that I couldn't do it. Mm, For sure. I really like your perspective there and it would most certainly help with your mindset and and just the general day-to-day stress management where we can pull back and say, well, look, this isn't going to affect someone's livelihood or life or family situation, as you said, the worst that can happen. Yeah, I love that. It's awesome. Right. So you've gone up to Mackay and, and had a bit of a holiday and intern work experience. You've come back, finished law degree and then worked in Brisbane, I believe, for your first kind of paid full-time legal employment. Yes. So I did a few clerkships. I did a couple of clerkships in Brisbane and then I went to Sydney for a three-month one because I was really interested in getting into a firm for three months rather than the one-month experiences I've had because it really seemed like you got to the firm, you did all the training, you settled in and then you were finished Mm. by the end of the month. So I went down to Sydney for three months and did a clerkship with Mallisons down there with 50 other summer clerks in that intake back in those days when Oh, money was flowing in these yeah. big firms. And... They don't do them like they used to. <laughs> no. The, the big clerkship intakes. Wow. And I had moved a little bit as a, a kid with my dad's job. So I'd started primary school in a new town. I'd started high school in a new town. I then moved to Brisbane for university and started uni in a, a new place where I didn't know anybody. So Mallison's offered me a role, but I just couldn't move city again at the start of a new phase. I I just didn't have it in me, I guess. So yeah, for sure. I, I came back and 
started looking around and I actually ended up at a very small firm, which wasn't the path I thought that I would take. I was going to go into a big firm and that's what law school kind of makes you think you want to do and everybody needs to do if you're going to be a success. But that isn't what panned out for me. A few things happened. But I went into a small firm and what that did was give me the ability to run my own files as an article clerk. So I wouldn't change that experience for the world in terms of seeing what my life would have been like going in as one of 50 new graduates into Mallison's in that year. Very small fish, very big pond. And where I ended up was somewhere that I was able to develop much faster and show what I could do. And it's a great point that you make because often when you're in law school, the only firms that are advertising to the students are those those big top tier firms that have their cash money to do it. But of course, as we know, there are hundreds of other firms to work for of all different shapes and sizes and specialties. And the experiences there can be really quite fulfilling and a little bit of a deep end but you you get to work with your own files and you're not hidden under layers of other lawyers and partners and senior associates so it's definitely a great path to consider if if you want an experience like that and you can really get your teeth sunk into so it sounds like you certainly enjoyed it. I think we've had this conversation before about leadership and management and everything I've learned about those things from my early career was from a series of what not to do from partners in law firms who I worked for across many different firms. They weren't all bad, but there were a lot of things that I didn't love about the environments I was working in. But I think you just make the best of whatever situation you're in. So there was a domestic building boom going on in Brisbane at the time. So there was a lot of building work around and the firm wasn't able to assist the clients with that because no one had that expertise so I just made myself an expert in building law as an article clerk and ran ran the building law practice for the firm and acted for some uh, builders but also for homeowners with actions against builders and spent a lot of time in what was then the Queensland Building Tribunal it's now QCAT appearing Mm -hmm. in mediations appearing in hearings instructing counsel all as an article clerk in the first two years of my career. So oh my goodness, that was something that I wouldn't have gotten at a bigger firm and that then got me headhunted into a national firm, into their construction team. Turned out front-end construction wasn't my thing, which mm-hmm. is really funny given where I end up. But, yes, drafting the same contract for weeks on end, coming from a litigation background where I'd been running 80 different files then going to you've got one file and these are the three clauses that you're drafting was really a bit of a shock to the system so I then had the opportunity within that firm to move into litigation and I did that and ended up doing just general commercial litigation a lot of construction litigation and eventually a lot of insolvency as we came into the start of the GFC. Wow I didn't know that I didn't know that you actually created an entire work practice for yourself and just saw the opportunity and took it even as a really really junior lawyer I think I think that's awesome so right so we end up in litigation and then in-house what an interesting transition and not a common one necessarily tell us about that that move for you 
I think it's a really useful background to have because what happens in litigation is you just jump from topic to topic. You know, your files aren't all about the same thing. You become an expert in whatever that matter is about very quickly because you need to talk to the client about their dispute in a way that shows that you understand what it's about. It's one thing to know all of the civil procedure that goes with running the dispute, but your client doesn't care about that. They care about you understanding their business and how this matter has impacted them. So I think it's quite comparable to in-house where you get into the detail of something very quickly, become an expert on it and be able to, to give advice. So I give that advice to a lot of people now. I actually think litigation is a great background for in-house life. And you also know what not to do again. <laughs> and so then when you're in-house, uh, you've got the opportunity to avoid the, the traps and uh, deal with things before they become what you see and what you've seen uh, at the back end there. So yeah, that makes yes, a lot and of I sense. The practice areas that I've been in, building law, then larger construction litigation, insolvency, and just general commercial litigation. So I've done some property-related matters if a, a matter didn't settle. So going through the, the contract of sale and all of that kind of thing. And then the insolvency gave me familiarity with banking documents. I would never call myself a banking and finance lawyer, but I'd, by the time you've done a stint in insolvency, you've read enough security packets from a bank to understand mm. what those documents are about, what all of those terms mean in terms of cross-securities and collateralisation and all of those kind of things. So again, in the in-house environment, it gives you enough to know what you're looking at and when you need an expert. And I think that's one of the biggest things as in-house lawyers that you need to know is when you need an expert. You can't know everything. And I refer to myself, particularly this year during COVID, when we were trying to make really significant decisions quickly with our executive team. At one point, I just said, you all need to stop. You're asking me <laughs> to mm. make these decisions and give you advice on this really quickly, but you need to understand that I'm your GP and you're asking for neurological advice at the moment. You need a neurosurgeon. We need to just hit the pause button and go to the specialist because that is not me. It cannot mm. be. An in-house lawyer just cannot be, particularly in the roles that I've been in that are very small teams. You need to know a little bit about a lot. You can't know a lot about a little. Oh, I love that. I'm going to quote you on that. It pretty much sums it up. And I find that that's really accessible. That analogy to doctors is really accessible to the business people when you're saying, I don't know everything. Think about it this way. I'm your GP. This is a big deal. We need to find the specialist. And that's really easily accepted without losing any credibility with your internal clients. And it just reiterates to them that we do have a boundary of our, our knowledge and our expertise. And it's always very lovely when they, they think that you know everything. I mean, that's great, but it's not the truth. So <laughs> I really love that analogy. And yeah, I use that myself as well from time to time, especially with, you know, internal clients that haven't worked with an in-house team before and don't understand what we do and what we don't do and you know even sometimes explaining that I can't help you personally with your mortgage documents no. and your family <laughs> law issues so yeah it's uh, interesting but definitely not so I don't actually think I told you how I got to in-house so I ended up at a, a mid-sized firm after I'd done kind of five years at the national firm I needed a change I needed a bit more balance back in my life Went to a mid-sized firm, 
and very quickly one of their clients had a major litigation matter that involved some property development and insolvency and bankruptcy. So I was tapped as being the person who'd go and solve that for that client. It turned out to be a very, very, very complex matter. But yeah, so I got sent on secondment and after the secondment went for a year the, at the construction company, so I should have said it was a, a national construction company, we made it permanent and I joined them in 2011, end of 2010. Those secondments, they can be such a great way to trial and test the waters before you make that, that yeah, jump. Yeah, absolutely. Before then, it probably wasn't particularly something that I felt very knowledgeable about what in-house life was like. I dealt with a few in-house lawyers in my career in terms of getting instructions from a client, but I didn't really comprehend what it could be. Has it lived up to your expectations, do you think? I think it probably filled a gap for me in terms of my personal fulfilment that I didn't know I had. Like I knew I didn't love being a lawyer. I don't think that everybody gets to love the work that they do. That's quite a privileged view of the world to my mind. If you think about you know, our parents' generation where our fathers just went to work every day in the same job because they had a family to support and that's mm. what they did. Mm. There wasn't this constant search for personal fulfilment out of your job. I never really felt that I needed to find the thing that I was born to do. I felt like law was okay. I was good at it. Enabled me to make a reasonable amount of money for me to travel the world and things that I get a great deal of enjoyment out of. But what I found in in in-house was that the type of lawyer I probably always wanted to be but didn't know I could be was available in that in-house environment where you didn't need to be the best black letter lawyer in the room. That never filled me with joy, that side of the law. What fills me with joy is working with the business and helping them to be better and actually seeing the results of your work. You you see a risk mitigated because of something that you've done. And that risk may never have come to pass, but it's still meaningful Mm. that you've protected a business or you've, I guess, the other side I like is educating people. So when I hear a general manager or a VP in my current role talking about something now in a contract that I know six months or 12 months ago they would never have thought about that but it's only because I've explained to them how the contract works what that type of clause does that they're now more skilled in their everyday dealings with contracts and clients so that gives me a lot of fulfillment as well. I did a, a workshop with our purchasing department Um, where I am now at Volvo, and the team had just been invited to submit any questions they had. And so that's from across the whole purchasing team, which is a huge team within Volvo because we've got all the automotive products. So there's a whole team who sorts out all of the bits and pieces that need to go to our factory to build trucks. That's their job. Their supply chain issues have been a lot of fun. And then we've got our indirect purchasing as well. So all of the other stuff, construction projects that need to happen in the factory for upgrades, stationery, labour hire, everything that doesn't go into a truck. So there's two quite large teams. But 
they were just invited to submit any legal questions they had because they had had training before. I'd reviewed the material and it was that nuts and bolts. It was, here's how the legal department globally is structured. That's all interesting, but it's not actually impacting their day-to-day and making them better at their job. And here's Mm. the precedent and here's how it works and you can't make changes to it, but if you want to make changes to it, here's the process you have to go through to get approval for the change. And that training goes for kind of two hours, but they don't come out of it with anything concrete. Mm. Whereas we did two hours where I had their questions, I'd made some notes, the vice president for the purchasing team had kind of grouped them into similar topic areas and we just sat there and talked for two and a half hours. We went through the questions, I got the person who'd submitted the question to ask it and give us a bit of context and then we talked about it. And the feedback from that kind of training has been really, really positive. They all feel that they are better for it. So I think sometimes we kind of get caught up with our own agendas for training rather than going to people and saying, what does your team need? If we're going to do some training with your team this year, what would it look like? Which is how I've always tried to structure training in my in-house roles, talking to the general managers, the VPs and saying, where are the gaps in your team? I want to round out and, and move into another question because you mentioned construction and then you've mentioned automotive, two very different industries really and, and two very different ways of practice and different companies. I, I want to kind of pick into that a little bit and ask you about your experience of transitioning from one industry to another and any reservations you might have had about that. I had huge reservations about that. I'd been in the construction industry for eight years by then, so I'd built an expertise. I was on the Doyle's Guide, Best In-House Infrastructure and Construction Lawyers in Australia, and there's a certain level of ego that comes with things like that. I'd been recognised in that area. But in the role I was in, there wasn't any future plan for what I could do in that organisation and and that's okay. Yeah. And because I'd gone into that role via secondment, I hadn't interviewed for that role. So I went off and having not had any job interviews in a decade, went on two, one in the construction industry and one with Volvo and was offered both jobs. That is a real sliding doors moment. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Do I play it safe or? That's right. And that is where I got to. I was very much leaning towards, well, this is what I know and this is what I'm good at and I know I'm good at it. I don't know if I'm good at another area because I've never been in another industry in-house, but I know I'm, I'm good at this. And my husband looked at me as I was doing the pros and cons and talking through all of this with him and said, I'm surprised that you're listing that it's something new as a con. I've never known you to be scared of a challenge. And then I talked to another friend who's the in-house counsel at another building and construction company and he and I sat down and did the pros and cons and he just looked at me and almost rolled his eyes and went, the pros on the Volvo list are significant. The pros on the stay in construction list are basically you know what you're doing. Yep. But what are you doing? Why are we even having this conversation? So, yeah, that, that made me leap, I guess, out of my comfort zone and into something new. But what I've found is that I think this would work for, for most industries, but I didn't understand it until I moved industry, is that contracts are generally the same. Construction contracts are a particular breed of horrible contract. 
everything else seems like a holiday after you've been dealing with construction mm. contracts for eight years. Yep. What I've also found is the construction industry, and I'm not the first person to say this, this is not groundbreaking, but there's some problems with the construction industry in terms of the way that the parties interact and view risk and the aggression that can be in not just the negotiation of the contract, but even in the drafting of the contract, you know, the the position that's taken at the outset before you even step in is often very one-sided. And what I've found in a different industry, still dealing with some similar parties, we're just selling them trucks instead of building them a facility where they house their trucks, is it's just a different approach. The contract's fairly reasonable. You ask for an amendment to an indemnity that's, you know, fairly reasonable, they tend to accept it. It's just not that really high stakes, high pressure, high aggression level of contracting. So there's a lot of people in that space um, working hard on that. And I'm a director on the Society of Construction Law and we're talking about what role we can play in trying to do that, but it's a big job to try and fix. So I guess that's been a bit of a breath of fresh air. I didn't realise maybe how much that just impacts your day-to-day just working in that kind of environment where people are sceptical of each other yes right from the beginning rather than trying to collaborate and work together about coming to a a solution that works for both parties so and how do you feel you know kind of 18 months on now after making that change I feel really good I think it's given me the opportunity to broaden my scope as well so I now look after for Volvo the safety health environment and quality function as well so that's out of the legal space for me to take a bit more of a leadership role in another area that's not my core area so that's been really good the I guess the faith that's been put in me by the president at Volvo and the rest of the executive team but we just I just really like the Volvo style there's a a fairly good balance of gender on the executive team so that's been nice that that's that's just generally not an issue the the gender thing I think coming from a Swedish company where a lot of top executives in Sweden are female it's just not a thing in in Sweden women work the whole society's set up for women to work it's it's just not a thing like it is here that we're trying to fight against Mm, the the way things used to be so that's been really refreshing And I guess the other thing that I reflect on is the industry is different. So the contracts I look at are different, but the rest of it is the same when you're a general counsel. You know, you're dealing with employment law. That looks the same wherever you are, the issues that you're talking about. The safety side of things, that compliance piece is always there. Competition law, it might look a bit different. And Volvo certainly has a much bigger competition law compliance element to it. Being a retailer of Mm. trucks, and also a franchisor of Mm, dealers. Yeah, I didn't realise. There's a whole new element of competition law that I've needed to get my head around. But you do that with your friendly expert external competition lawyer and you continue (laughs) to learn. So by now, 18 months in, I can answer most day-to-day questions without going to the external lawyer. But because we've done a training package that's not just been for our people, it's been for me. It's just cut well. out a little bit there. Can you hear so me? So all of those kind of pieces of law, they look the same wherever you are. So I guess you identify a problem in the business, but you also train yourself up at the same time. 
I want to ask about working with recruiters and your experience of that when you were looking for your next your next role. You know, you mentioned that you hadn't interviewed for, you know, a decade and it was quite a new thing to come back to. How did you find that experience and, and what would you suggest to anyone who wanted to work with recruiters to make a move? I think the first thing that I did was just follow a number of recruiters on LinkedIn and just get a sense for which ones had the jobs that I was interested in. And I did that for about six months before I even started seriously looking. I then met with them, explained what I was looking for, where I was at, got some advice on updating my CV. And well, for the legal field, I think the niche ones for me worked better at the level that I was at. So the ones who do those really selected roles, there's not that many in Brisbane coming up at at the level that I was at of general counsel. So the ones who have a high volume of roles, I felt they didn't understand who I was and what I was looking for in my professional life and didn't understand the value that I could bring. So I had my CV with them and then I would see roles advertised on their LinkedIn that were basically the role I was currently doing, just mm. with a different company. And I'd say, <laughs> hello, <laughs> yeah, you've got my CV. I'm currently the general counsel in a construction company. This is a role for a general counsel in a construction company. Um, you didn't think, and they'd say, oh, of course, we'd be happy to put you forward for that role. Right. Really? You're doing the work for them. <laughs> yeah. And so the smaller legal recruiters, I just felt it was a more personal service. So they would call me and say, look, I'm pitching for a role that's coming to the market that I think would be great for you. I'll let you know if I get it because I think you'd be good. And then I'd get the call from one of them to say, I didn't get it, but look out for the ad because I think it'll be really good for you. And then I get the call from another one saying, hey, I've got this great new role. I'm not going to advertise it yet. I want you on the shortlist before we even go to advertising. Awesome. Like, okay, like this is, this is better. This feels better. This feels like this person, although they've got a financial interest in getting the right person for the role, but it did actually feel like those recruiters cared about me and my career and getting a good job for me to go into. And I think it's important, particularly when you've been in a role for a long time, your CV updating is not a simple process because I was a senior associate at a law firm when I went in to my first in-house role. When I came out the other end, I was a general counsel. That's a very different CV and it's a completely different structure. We're all used to as junior lawyers, the, you know, here's the firm I worked for and here's the practice area I worked in, here's the type of things I did. Whereas at the executive level, it's really more a skills-based grouping of things. You know, In this space, here are all the things I've got experience with. In this space, here's all the things I have experience with, not here's the job I worked in, here's all the things I did. Okay, that is such a different approach. It's a completely different structure and that process I think took me about three months to get my CV into a state of an executive CV. And were the recruiters helping you with that? I got some feedback from them. So yes, just in terms of, yeah, you need to to take this approach. This, here's an example structure. Think about doing it that way so that people see really clearly the areas of their business that you can help them with. Got it. Awesome advice, Jodie. Yeah, so it would have been good if someone gave me a really good, you know, template and said, here, here's here's a really good one. Just (laughs) if you tick all those boxes, just make it look like that. So I did have to do a lot of work myself, but having that 
understanding of, right, that's what they're going to be looking at. They're reading a CV and wanting to understand what you're going to do. You're going to get in here on day one and you're going to improve HR, you're going to improve safety, you're going to improve purchasing. Like here are all the things that you can help with Mm. and that you understand how a business operates and is structured. For sure, for sure. Such good advice. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to take you to a completely different place now. And this is an area that we could talk about for hours and we only have minutes. And I, oh my gosh, I don't even really know where to start. But I want to talk about your experience with parental leave, motherhood, full-time work, being an executive in your role and that juggle because, I mean, you know where I'm coming from. We've had this discussion before and it remains the same. I have so much, it's like a fear around taking those steps into family life because it looks really hard and really (laughs) scary. But, But at the same time, I applaud you for being a vocal advocate because you are someone that I look to in our industry to say, look, Jody's doing it. They all (laughs) seem to be alive and well. It is absolutely possible. You know, you cannot be what you cannot see. And I I see you and I honour what you do and how you are. But I really want to ask, like, how do you juggle it all? I know that's so cliche, but tell me, please. So I think if we talk about parental leave first, Sometimes the model that's given to females, particularly thinking about how long they might take off, is either the, I was back doing meetings while breastfeeding at the hospital three hours after I gave birth because I'm running my business and I'm a boss lady. Or it's, I took 12 months of maternity leave and had no connection with work. And nothing's wrong with either of those options, but for me, neither of those fit my view of how I wanted to experience that. So I did a bit of a hybrid where I continued to work one day a week while I was on parental leave and I chose what I was going to keep of my responsibilities. So I kept the board reporting responsibilities. So I had a contract lawyer come in and sit in my chair to do the day-to-day work and I would get the reports from that lawyer and the other lawyer in my team and I would compile the board reports. So I still knew where all of the major matters were. I knew when things popped up and I was able to interact with the board and have that continuity. I also signed off all the bills because that was something I could do with one hand while breastfeeding. (laughs) You know, it's annoying. It's a task that... No one really wants to do, but you need some level of cast your eye over the bill, make sure that it's consistent. So I did all of that. What else did I do? A few other like major pieces of litigation that were ongoing, I continued to be the liaison with the external lawyers. So the external lawyers were running it. It was very just instructions being given and coordinating those instructions. So I just chose the things that I wanted to keep a handle on mm. while I was on maternity leave. Okay. And honestly... I had such a struggle with my first baby, not feeding, not sleeping, all those kind of things that you go from being someone who feels pretty competent about life in general. I know what I'm doing. I've got this job. I fly around the country negotiating contracts. It's all good to Mm. fetal position in the corner of the nursery. Mm. I can't do this. How on earth did (laughs) they let me take this baby home from hospital? I'm completely unprepared for this. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And being in that headspace can be really difficult. And I, I can see why postnatal depression is such a major problem because Mm. 
<laughs> you just you're learning something brand new, but so is the baby, and there's no one there to teach you. It's a really unusual kind of situation for an adult to be in, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure that we talk about that generally enough. But it is really hard, and it's really new for everybody. It's not a beautiful natural thing that as soon as the baby comes out, you go, oh, now I know what to do. And they don't come with a manual, I've been told. Well, look, there are a lot of books that come with babies, but babies don't read them. Right, yeah. So, They're doing their own thing. That's right. You can read all the books you like, but the baby's just going to do what they want and you've got to roll with them. So being able to answer a few emails really kept my head okay in those early couple of months because I felt like I was failing in one part of my life but I still had a handle on some other things I could punch off a couple of emails and go okay I'm not a complete failure Mm. I can still do that so I found that balance really good for me I don't have any problem with someone saying do you know what I'm just going to enjoy this 12 months with my baby I don't want to hear from work nor do I have a problem with someone saying, look, my husband's going to be the full-time carer and I'm going to go up back to work after three months. I think you mm-hmm. find the, the path that works for you, but it's not all or it's not one or the other. I think there is a, a balance you can strike there because you are valuable to your employer. If you've been there for a while, you've got all this corporate knowledge that a contractor coming in to sit in your chair to cover your parental leave is not going to have. So if you can identify some little pockets of things that you could keep working on and whether it is non-time critical things like okay while I'm on parental leave I'm going to work on a few precedents just things that you can keep doing so I, I just I think we need to talk about that more that it's not all or nothing there's there's a middle ground that can work for both parties That's a great message and I think that there's a lot to be said for staying connected with your team and the office and and when you're away for an extended period of time, the opportunity to still have a little connection to your your former life and your former self, I'm sure, was very grounding and, and very, yeah, maybe was quite nice in those moments of you know, this new life is, I'm still finding my feet in this new life here. There is no one size fits all and I guess it probably comes down to communication and just asking the questions of... Yes, and I say that to law firm partners, like, just ask. Mm. When they say, oh, I've got, you know, my senior associate's going on parental leave, do you have any tips? Just ask them. Do they want to still be in touch? And it's okay if they say no. It's entirely their right to do that. But ask them. Don't just assume that they don't want to hear from you for the six, nine, 12 months that they're on parental leave ask. Mm. Jodie, what other tips do you have in this space? I think it's really important to not, and it's easy as the mother, to become the default parent. The one person who knows how the house works, how the kids' schedules go, where all of the things are kept, all the washing, all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the default parent, you know you're the default parent when all that your kids ask their other parent is where's mum or where's dad like you you've walked to them to find me to come and ask me to do something that your father could have done that's not okay so we've worked really hard to make sure that Paul is an entirely competent and capable parent because if I need to travel for work I can't do that comfortably if I'm worried the whole time about the house falling apart in my absence So I went back to work when our first daughter was eight months and Paul stepped down to a four-day week. So he's had Fridays at home 
with one child and then two for almost five years now. He went back to five days a week when I was on parental leave with our second for six months. But so he was really scared about that. But you just do it and it's the best way to learn it is just to do it. You know, the, the kids are going to be fine. <laughs> as long as you remember to feed them and they sleep at some point and you change their nappies. Like they're okay. We're not talking about <laughs> particularly fragile creatures at this point. So I, I think having that support and equal partner in parenting is really useful and that's obviously not a, a luxury that's available to everybody but I would find it very hard to do my role and go to Sweden for a week like I did not last year the year before mm-hmm. if I didn't have that at home and I guess the other big thing and I think was it Nora Roberts who coined this whole glass ball and plastic ball we're all juggling balls all the time, work balls, home balls, family balls. Some of them are glass, some of them are plastic, and you've just got to understand which ones are glass and you're not going to drop. Brilliant. So I think that's been really useful for me, particularly in the last, yeah, we've had <laughs> we've had a busy year. I think everybody had a busy 2020 just to say, you know what, no, like this one's glass because we might have to shut down our factory because there's been a COVID outbreak near Wacol where our factory is so work is glass right now this needs to be sorted family needs to come second my daughter starts school next week all of the stuff in the lead up to that has been glass and work has come second to that so just identifying it's not always going to be the same but you need to know in your head which balls are glass and set that boundary for yourself wow thank you so much you i just so appreciate your honesty and and just being brave and having that conversation with me. It's not something that we might do as often as we we could or we should and looking to the the role models around us because they are most certainly out there and asking them, hey, how do you do do it? Yeah, and look, we should be asking the men as well, just trying to normalise the fact that everybody is trying to balance family life and work life. And we ask women a lot how they balance work and home because we expect that women carry more of the load at home. Mm -hmm. And for our generation, that's probably true, but I hope for my girls that that will not be the case. So we're trying really hard that they just see mum and dad both going to work, mum and dad both doing housework as normal, and that's what they'll expect in their lives going forward. So... Oh, that's beautiful. You're such a role model to them and to to me (laughs) and to everybody everybody else's daughters. We are coming up to the end of our time together. And, you know, speaking of your girls, I know they're coming back from the park and Paul's taken them out (laughs) Saturday afternoon. I don't want to encroach on your family time. We could speak on that topic alone for an entire episode and, and everything else that you have to offer in your career. There's so much gems of wisdom and I offer to anyone if you're open to it to reach out to you on LinkedIn uh, and have a connection and say hello to Jodie and and ask any questions you might have about anything we've discussed because I I just think you've got so much to offer and I hope that's okay. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. I'm going to leave it there and, and let you get on with your Saturday afternoon. Thank you, Mel. Nice to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn or Instagram.